I'm Michael Marshall, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people, mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 239. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello. Hey son, hey son. Woohoo. Ah, back again. Another week, another podcast. Yeah. So what have you guys been up to lately? Ooh. In the last in the last week or so. <laughs> I, I have been working quite a lot with the magazine that we do for the Swedish Skeptics because there's a vacancy in the editorial board there. So I have volunteered to help out. And it's a bit of a work. Yeah. I spent the whole weekend writing and correcting and uh, misplacing files and things like that. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. What about you, Monica? Uh, I've been mostly teaching. (laughs) Good. We need that. Teaching? Yeah. Even during the weekend? Nah, and the weekend I moved. Like, we are trying to move. So I packed boxes. So I'm like packing boxes and teaching. And were you singing, I like to move it, move it? Yes. I like to. (laughs) Definitely. I can't actually move without singing that. (laughs) Oh, good, good. That's what I thought. Um, not too long ago, I was at, at the Budapest Zoo and uh, I visited the ring-tailed lemur. I think yes, it's um, I think so. the, yeah. the, the name, but they were not shaking it. No, no. no. <laughs> did you sing it to them though? Believe it or not, I did. <laughs> good. <laughs> but last weekend hmm? I went to a wonderful event. It was a 40th annual Hungarocon, which was a sci-fi convention. Huh? And the organizers decided that they would go along with the event, but with mandatory uh, mask wearing and hand sanitizers everywhere and uh, physical distancing of at least uh, 1.5 meters. So even in the uh, audience halls, people were asked to sit a bit further from one another. So it was pretty well set up, but still very low attendance. But the Hungarian Skeptic Society was there. And uh, I was there as well, not only representing the organization, but I also gave a talk on chemophobia and whether we should be afraid of chemicals in general. And as for the rest of the day, we were running something like a convention booth, but not quite. It was a desk with uh, large printed posters showcasing the the most popular bogus products and claims and stuff, and a display about climate change and a couple of quiz sheets on um, topics ranging from vaccination and evolution all the way up to GMOs and extraterrestrial life. So good stuff. We had a few very nice conversations with um, attendees at, at our stand, so it was a lot of fun. But I also had time to look around and I had a really lovely time chatting with some Hungarian Trekkies. Ah. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know about you, Anika, how much you're into Star Trek, but I know I know about Pontus and how he likes it. Uh, what about you? Uh, I do watch it occasionally. Um, I don't I don't know everything by heart, <laughs> okay. but I do like it. <laughs> well, I did quite well on their quiz. 
of the Hungarian I'm sure trackies. you did, you nerd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they have a lot of things on display. And they gave a lovely talk as well on, on Voyager. Did, did you know that the show is 25 years old? this year mm. it's unbelievable 25 years ago it started yeah. star trek voyager anyhow i had a nice weekend and i just i just wanted to mention that and we we did it with the hungarian skeptic society so i was busy with that uh, setting up the the quizzes and everything so uh, mm-hmm. i i got really tired by the time sunday was upon us oh well oh i got shocked a couple of days ago Mm-hmm. Do you remember the time when I contracted some really weird uh, unidentified sickness in Malaysia? We said it was dengue, but it was... Yeah, right yeah, around then yeah. I talked about how big an issue dengue was uh, becoming all over the world. Mostly tropical places, though, and it's spread by target mosquitoes, uh, but those are present in most of uh, Europe, especially the Mediterranean. And when people travel to infected places, then come back home with one of the four strains of the virus in their blood, even if they're asymptomatic, it only takes a mosquito to sting them, suck their blood, then move on to the next guy, and boom, we've got ourselves a locally transmitted case. And it looks like the reports are coming in from all over Europe about locally transmitted cases this summer. Ouch. Yeah, which is a real bummer. And why? Because right when these mosquitoes started rising for their new life cycles, at the beginning of summer, obviously, the borders were basically shut. So where do these cases come from? Europe has seen reports from France and Spain so far, but it looks like the virus is present in northern Italy as well, in the Veneto region. Although in this case, it can probably be traced back to a person who came home from Indonesia in July and got sick, but then a whole family tested positive when they started showing the same symptoms. Only that they had no recent history of traveling abroad. So that is a locally transmitted case. So the good news is, it might only be a matter of years before the Mediterranean makes it to the list of severely infected areas on the planet. So good luck. (laughs) That's bad. An area that has for a long time been considered free of this nasty bug. And since among the several different ways it can go, one is dengue hemorrhagic fever and dengue shock syndrome, uh, with the potential for an antibody-induced enhancement of the disease, it can be life-threatening. Don't want to induce panic or or, or anything, but Mm -hmm. it's worth keeping an eye on. Well, of course, this is 2020. I mean, we expect all kinds of disasters, plagues and whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also like climate change, people. Like it's it's not like it's going to be going to get better. Exactly. (laughs) It it has a lot to do with it because uh, these tiger mosquitoes are gaining more and more ground. They are expanding their territories and uh, that's the result. Yeah, but but before we get too down, I mean, there is good news as well. Yeah, sometimes one of the news that we heard a couple of weeks ago now was that uh, uh, Africa no longer has wild polio. It was an announcement by uh, WHO. At least there's that. Yeah. So Ooh. that's at least one thing, and that's really really great. Good, good. And uh, now the only countries left with wild polio is uh, are Pakistan and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and. Th- it's hard to to fight it there because of local conflicts. Of course, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. bad region uh, have been for many years, uh, and also uh, there is a lot of anti vaccination propaganda going around. And it if it, if it hadn't been for that, we would have eradicated polio a long time ago. Yes. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it, it, it's, this is good news, but um, there's still work to be done with polio. There's still vaccine induced polio in some countries which is due to the oral vaccine that you get. It sometimes 
can spread if you um, because the oral vaccine is a live vaccine it's it's a milder it's an attenuated one yeah it's an attenuated virus i should say uh, so, so it's a milder one you don't get sick normally from that but it sometimes if you do it in a population with poor hygiene and, and low vaccination rates it can live in the population for a while because you can actually if you get this vaccination you can actually spread that vaccine effect the immunity to others but if that goes on for too long, there is a risk. There is a, a mutation and then you get a local outbreak of polio due to the vaccine. There's a couple of hundred cases per year in the world. So it's still worth doing that. But uh, that needs to be eradicated too. And the good news is you do it the same way you eradicate the wild virus. You, you vaccinate and you fix uh, sanitation and st stuff like that. Because vaccines work, bitches. It does. It does. <laughs> yes. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> oh, but I don't want to be a dick about this. And to tell us more about how not to be a dick and how to be nice about being a skeptic, we are starting the actual show with someone who's had a lot of experience in being a very nice person while being an active skeptic. <laughs> All right. Joining us from the United Kingdom is our internationally recognized skeptical friend and skeptical role model and probably <laughs> the most active skeptical campaigner in Europe, Mr. Michael Marshall. Welcome back to the show, Marsh. Hey, thanks for having me back. And thanks for that very, uh, very lovely, very kind words for an introduction there. I'm, uh, I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. Always a pleasure to have you. <laughs> I think it's well deserved and uh, we, we're grateful for everything you do. <laughs> but the reason for reaching out to you this time was that we'd like you to tell us about your new role as the editor of the UK magazine The Skeptic that you took over from Deborah Hyde, right? I did, yeah. So, so Deborah uh, approached me a little while ago and asked me whether I'd be uh, interested in taking over being the editor of uh, of The Skeptic, and we've been we've uh, now just relaunched it. So it's actually going to be um, I'm the the editor, but it's also going to be run and sort of produced by the Merseyside Skeptic Society. Uh, mm -hmm. So I've got a good solid good. team behind me. So it's not uh, not just going to be me. That helps. And uh, yeah. Alice is going to be the deputy editor. And really, what I what I really want from uh, the magazine is to try and sort of take it into kind of the next phase, the next chapter of its uh, existence. It's been going since 1987, which is a, a fantastic legacy. It's amazing. Um, and it's had some really fantastic writers and and, uh, and editors and covered some really important topics. And I think where we want to go is uh, we've, we've moved the magazine um, completely online. And uh, rather than being a quarterly periodical that's subscription only, it's going to be essentially a, an online news hub for what we hope to be kind of some of the best sceptical writing um, from the UK and, and from a, a bit abroad on top of that as well. So we're trying to attract lots of people who see it as kind of, if they do the kind of scepticism that I've tried to been doing for a long time and that people at the Merseyside Skeptics and a QED and, and Good Thinking and the various other projects that um, that we're involved in, we, we try and do a certain type of scepticism that's very sort of compassion-led and really sort of thinking about how we're, we're communicating with people. And um, if that's the kind of thing people are into, then uh, I hope they go to The Skeptic for, uh, for, for news and commentary and analysis in that style, really. Yeah, it, it looks very uh, slick. It, you've, you've really bumped up the, yeah. the graphics and the whole design <laughs> of the thing, right? 
basically revamped the whole thing. Yeah, well, we really wanted to give it quite a, a modern feel. And I think it's always useful when you have yeah. a kind of change in editorial team to, to use that as an opportunity to um, take stock of, of what you want the, the publication to be, wh- what you're trying to achieve, who you're trying to reach and how you're trying to reach them. So yeah. it's, it seemed a, a perfect time to do that, really. And we're really happy with how, with how it looks. And I think you know it's not just about the cosmetics, really, it's about the content. But I think the cosmetics and the aesthetics kind of help set the tone for what we're trying to do really which is quite open approachable skepticism it's not ivory tower skepticism it's not you have to be steeped in uh having read all the right books and seen all the right ted talks from all the right people before you before (laughs) you're allowed into the club it's very much kind of people might dip into it people might find an article on there and, and and kind of think what is this all about and and how do i kind of learn a bit more about it so it's trying to be quite engaging and to carry the authority of a, of a publication that's been going for what 33 years now that's absolutely amazing it's almost as old as i am it's not quite but it's almost as old as i am older than me <laughs> so, so do you have a, a regular band of contributors now all the, signed up i guess they don't not getting paid too much but pe- people who are willing to to go in and, and regularly can write pieces for you yeah, we do. And so everything is voluntary. So I'm the the, the, the position of editor itself is voluntary. So uh, the branding of the magazine and the relaunch of the magazine and the ongoing kind of um, publication of the magazine online uh, at the moment is being funded by the Merseyside Skeptic Society, basically through people who subscribe to Skeptics of the K's Patreon and, and various other kind of things that oh, the MSS so it's do. Me, do. Then. Mm. Yeah. It's you. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> we, we said we'd use this to try and support the kind of stuff we do. Uh, and all the money that goes to Skeptics of the K, and we don't take any cut of it. It just kind of goes into the the MSS accounts and then we find useful ways to use that to support the skeptical community around the UK and internationally as we always kind of put it. So we've got quite a few people who are, who have voluntarily uh, agreed to give us articles which I'm really, really excited about. And the idea I have is if we're putting out about 3 articles a week to begin with sort of every other day then we can have a month's worth of content from about 15 regular writers. And I think the more established we get at putting out that regularity and the more established we get at um, being a thing that people can look to, um, the more I think we'll be able to take on additional people who are willing to submit either a regular article or one here and there. Um, But I'm really excited because it it was an opportunity as well for... I've been around the UK touring Skeptics Talks for the last couple of years as part of my job with Good Thinking. So I got to Skeptics in the pubs all the time, or I did before the whole pandemic thing. It's really weird not to have given a talk for six months. It's the longest I've gone without giving a talk in five years. Uh, And I used to give a talk. (laughs) You must be going crazy by by now. I miss audiences. I miss standing in front of people saying stuff. And people go, oh yeah, that's interesting. It's driving me mad. You know, I I, I did it every, I think I was doing a talk, more than a talk talk every fortnight yeah. for five years and then bang mm. nothing it's yeah. bizarre to me oh. but because i was traveling around the uk a lot and because of the work that i do with good thinking and the kind of the project work and the activism and the campaigning um, we found mm-hmm. a lot of people who i think are really useful and really interesting voices in skepticism who who maybe didn't see themselves uh, directly as a voice in skepticism before uh, and so it's really nice to be able to say here's an opportunity to have an archaeologist talk about that, the sceptical insights that archaeologists can bring and a historian doing that. And we've got Pixie Turner, who's going to be doing a, a regular yeah. uh, contribution on nutrition. And mm-hmm. we're trying to, to say it doesn't just have to be the staple stuff of homeopathy, 
creationism ghosts dowsing but actually we can look much more broadly than that while also doing those things as well so i'm really excited about the people that we got on board and i'm excited about who else sees the magazine uh, and sees the the publication in the future and thinks i fancy writing something for them mm. So you are open for submissions like that, or if uh, people from all over Europe, perhaps uh, not restricted to the UK, I'm assuming, because you uh, also mentioned at least twice since you've been talking the, the word international. So to what extent do you intend to put it out to the international stage? Well, I think certainly the community we're, we're, uh, of readers that we're looking for, for will be international because everything is connected now. It's online, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no such thing. Well, yeah. There are very few such things as a you know geographically specific <laughs> phenomena in terms of uh, pseudoscience. And we see that even really writ large here in the UK where we had a QAnon rally in several cities around the UK and then a massive wow. one in London. And you wow. had people walking around with signs saying, save our children from the paedophile satanic cabal and they spelt paedophile the american way which is just really <laughs> emblematic of the fact that these are international issues yeah. and that's not just in the english language although we will just be writing in the english language uh, ourselves so we've got uh, natalia pastanak and uh, carlos orsi from uh, brazil who uh, have already written a, a fantastic article looking at hydroxychloroquine and the way that took hold of bolsonaro in uh, in brazil mm -hmm. and they're going to be writing a monthly piece for us we have uh, claire klingenberg uh, from uh, exo who you guys obviously know Ooh. very very well oh yeah um, um, she's written a couple of pieces for us, one of which we published today as of uh, as of recording about kind of the history of the sceptical movement. So I am definitely interested in, in writers from outside of the UK, although I'd say we, we probably have a largely UK focus. Um, but I'm, I'm really interested in, in many ways for a UK audience, showing people that scepticism isn't bound by the borders of the UK, Australia and America. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not a phenomena of English language, um, because I think we can sometimes forget that. And I know whenever I've been to things like European Skeptics Con uh, Congress, I've always found it really fascinating to hear about all the things that are happening that I wouldn't normally hear about because they're happening in Italian or in Swedish or in Hungarian or, you know, in, in, in all in German and, uh, and other languages that uh, we English don't know and don't pay attention to. So it's, <laughs> it's really interesting to be able to showcase some of that stuff as well. Yeah, you know, this is the very reason why this podcast exists in the first place. Mm. So we are very happy to hear about that. And um, obviously, if uh, we come across someone who might be interested or uh, one of our listeners uh, might be interested, can they just uh, go straight to you? Or yeah. where can they find you? How can they contact you? If they go to uh, the website, which is skeptic.org.uk, uh, you'll see in the uh, the navigation there, it says right for us. And it, it explains there how to, to get in touch. And what we say is Good. we're open to submissions, but pitch the story first don't just well I wouldn't want someone to go away and write 1500 words and then send me 1500 words and say there you go what I'd like to do is, is for people to say I've got this idea for a thing I want to write about X um, and then we can talk about it a little bit especially when it's someone who hasn't written uh, mm -hmm. for us so far um, and we can develop that but I'm, I'm definitely all ears and I think the other thing I'd say is um, have a look at the site and have a look at what else is on there to, to get a feel for what we're trying to do because I think what we're really keen to do is show I, I sort of mentioned it earlier the sort of the compassionate side of skepticism this kind of compassionate skepticism the idea that mm -hmm. being right isn't the end goal being right is just one of the waypoints on being an active skeptic or being a a, a positive uh skeptic who's making a a positive difference in the world once we have the right answer we then have to then communicate that to people in a way that that's going to be approachable to them that's going to be engaging to them that's going to be something they can connect with mm -hmm. and i think 
we do that not by saying, hey, you're wrong, I'm right, look how right I am. <laughs> uh, we do it by trying to understand how people come to believe in things that aren't true and to try to, to show that understanding in the way we talk about things, um, as well as an understanding of, of what we think is and isn't true as the best available evidence suggests to us. So it's uh, it's not about saying the facts don't care about your feelings uh, kind of thing. It's, it's very much understanding that people are human and uh, our, our brains are wired in certain ways. We tell stories, our, our feelings are part of how we see the world and to pretend that we are logical automata is to lie to ourselves even as skeptics yeah. so that's kind of the the tone that i think we're going for really is to is to show the the human side of uh, skepticism not just the the logical robot uh, rational actor <laughs> yeah. blind processor kind of side of it I, I guess that's what's behind your new motto yeah yeah so we, we were really keen to so the strap line of the magazine is reason with compassion Very good. um because we see that as both a, a description of what we're doing but also as an imperative that we we don't just go around saying i am rational we try to do that with compassion as we do it to 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 understand that um logic and reason don't exist in a vacuum they exist through the lens of how we as human beings interpret the world and to to pretend otherwise is to uh is to lie to ourselves or to miss something really fundamental about being human i think mm -hmm. yeah and i think it's the only way to actually reach people who are not sure so it's it's actually really really smart to do that yeah i, I think so and it, it's why you know with a lot of the projects that i've been involved in your know, qeds very much like this things like be reasonable a podcast that i have tries to have a similar kind of uh, approach and i think it's i don't think people change their mind because you said you know that thing you really care about you're wrong about it and you're an idiot for believing it i don't think people change their mind for that yeah, i think I people may change <laughs> their mind if you ask them why they believe in something and give them the space to to explain that and show that you're actively listening um rather than writing them off so that's the kind of skepticism i that i i, I try and do in the work that i do and it's a kind of skepticism I, I want the kind of magazine to embody really and you do it very well and we occasionally even mention you on the show <laughs> not being able to believe uh, how you can keep your reserve and straight face while interviewing a couple of people. It's really hard. So I know how difficult it is. Mm. And uh, it, it feels like Skeptics with a K is something like a way of letting off the steam for you because that's that's where you release all the anger that, that you, <laughs> you, you have in your yourself. At least this is how it comes yeah, across. It, it, is, it, it, is, it is very much a different approach. But I mean, I think that kind of skepticism, the, the be reasonable side, the talking about ideas we disagree with without necessarily vilifying the people who believe. Um, I think it is hard, but I don't think any of us got into skepticism because it's the easy choice. Yeah, um, that's right. We can we can do skepticism the easiest way, which is to be snarky and cynical and uh, aggressive, but we're already doing something that is uh, not the easy path. So why do it uh, halfway? Why not go the whole hog and uh, and, and do it as, as well as we can, really? Yeah. <laughs> but goodness me, I can't keep up with uh, all the number of hats that you've got. <laughs> can, can you? No, well, I mean, I, I do have to kind of figure out sometimes uh, where, my, where my time goes, because obviously I work full time for the Good Thinking Society. Yeah. And uh, we're still doing a, a lot of work at the moment where I'm actually just in the middle of working with the media and politicians and um, some family members uh, who've lost loved ones to um, alternative cancer industry 
cancer quackery, cancer cures to try and hey. tighten up the legislations in the UK so that people are, are more protected. And I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of doing something. Hopefully that in the future will uh, will be quite productive. So yeah, I, I try to throw myself into lots of different things and try to accomplish quite a lot. And, and hopefully we're having a real difference here in the UK as, as well as the, the various of the projects I do uh, in terms of podcasts and stuff. So yeah, I like to keep busy. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's quite obvious. You're only here once. You're only alive once. You might as well uh, try your hand at everything. Yeah, according to some, at least, uh, you were only here once. <laughs> All right. Well, we could. I think we could. We could go on and on and on and uh, listen to you. Uh, to you talking about all the stuff that you do for uh, ages, but uh, I'm afraid we have to say goodbye to you now. But <laughs> thanks very much for coming on the show and uh, talking about your latest venture. <laughs> and, and I really hope that it's a great success. And, oh, well, uh, thank you. And it's it's always a pleasure to be on the show. And uh, I'm sure it won't be the last time. So I'm sure we'll, we'll speak again. All right. I, I'm pretty sure it will. <laughs> <laughs> okay so thank you very much marsh michael marshall thanks a lot thanks a lot guys thanks goodbye talk to you next time <laughs> bye-bye bye-bye take care okay so now that the spirit has been absolutely elevated from the lethargic start of the show <laughs> with all the diseases that we talked about <laughs> uh i think it's time for us to move on and run through the regular segment well the first of which is when we find out what happened this week in skepticism <laughs> Yeah, and this week, on September 10th, in 2008, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN was first powered up. Ooh. And oh. that's really and the cool. The world ceased to exist. Yes, actually, that's true. Exactly. We're like in a multiverse now. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't know in which uh, version we still exist. But yeah, it's the um, just to <laughs> give you some actual facts about it. Um, it's the largest particle accelerator in the world. And it's um, located beneath the Swiss-French border. And as CERN is funded and was founded by several European states like Belgium, Norway, France, Hungary, Sweden, Germany or Switzerland, among others, mm -hmm. uh, we can really say it's a it's a huge European thing. Huge. <laughs> it's the best Hadrian Collider ever was. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Tremendous. Yes. <laughs> but as um, you guys already alluded to, it was speculated that the Large Hadrian Collider could create mini black holes that the actual physicists thought that might happen. And that in the general public, there were a lot of anxieties and fears around powering it up. In the real world, <laughs> the Hadron Collider is most famous for discovering the Higgs boson um, particle in 2012, which also is sometimes called the God particle. Mm -hmm. That's blasphemy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, actually, physicists don't really like that word. They say it's exaggerating. And yeah, it's also famous because part of Dan Brown's fictional thriller Angels and Demons took place there. And, of course, there are several conspiracy theories and beliefs about the Large Hadron Collider. Um, people think that the LHC is responsible for creating earthquakes or for opening portals to other universes, ensuring time travel, opening a portal to hell and summon the Antichrist. <laughs> I'm assuming that it's not said by scientists themselves. No, that that's definitely not believed by scientists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. They also think it's a secret weapon or a way to reach aliens. But if we use Occam's razor on that, I have to say it's much more likely that the Large Hadron Collider is a Hadron Collider with an aim to research physics. 
What can also be made mentioned around that is that there was a video turning up about a ritual um, video that took place at CERN, and they found out that it was a hoax. So it, it looks like it looked like a satanic ritual, mm-hmm. also opening a portal to summon the anti- Antichrist or whatever. But CERN itself stated that it's fictional; it doesn't have any ground in reality, and even imitating rituals like that is not allowed on grounds of CERN. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff with skepticism going around CERN and the Large Hadron Collider, but we can definitely say for science, this has been a very cool thing. Like, not not the beliefs, but the actual Hadron Collider. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And, and you remember back in 2017, on our episode 98, we actually interviewed a scientist from CERN, Stephen Goldfarb. Mm-hmm. He was attending the Ratio uh, conference in Bulgaria, where uh, Jelena and I was invited to talk about measles, actually. So if you want to know more, you can go back to that episode and look for that. Definitely. Good. (laughs) All right. So thank you very much, Monica. Thank you. It's just amazing to me how it got the green light that groups of scientists could actually convince politicians to allocate that much money to a research program that doesn't really seem to provide readily usable outcomes. So it's not like tomorrow you're going to use the findings there for profitable products. It's not translatable directly to our everyday life, so far at least. Uh, Or part of it might be, but it's a pure scientific endeavor. Yeah, it's like it's super important for science, um, for physics especially, but it's so highly specific that I as a layperson, for example, I looked up a God particle and Higgs boson. Mm -hmm. I didn't even get it. So (laughs) So you can see it's like so highly specific, but it's also so important for science. And that's why it's so great that they actually could persuade um, other lay people to allow that. Exactly. And um, I'm pretty sure it has something to do with it uh, being too complicated complicated to understand. I I wouldn't claim an understanding of what's going on there. And uh, I'm pretty sure that for a lot of people, it's very frustrating. And it's, it's, it's difficult to wrap your head around the fact that it's pure science. It doesn't have implications on your everyday life at the moment. And people just ask a question, why would anyone fund something like that then? And they have to have a reason in their heads behind this to be a reasonable, reasonable to, to to fund it. And I, I think that has a lot to do with how many different um, uh, conspiracy theories emerge around it. Anyhow, we talked about the gut particle, so I'm really eager to hear if Pontus has <laughs> something to poke the Pope for this week. You are, well, do I? I mean, oh wow, reminder to self, <laughs> never leave the Pope unpoked for three weeks because... <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 I, I gave the man a rest two weeks ago, and then he felt that. <laughs> and then last week uh, we had an interview episode, so we didn't poke him then either. Ay, 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 so ay. he has had much too time to mess up for me to get it through all. I have to kick things out here, but I'll go through some of the highlights. <laughs> Frankie, the the loose cannon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, listeners who have followed us remember last uh, year's synod in Rome, where bishops argued that. Uh, where they argued about whether or not to allow married priests or even women to serve as deacons in the Amazon. And this was due to the shortage of men stupid enough to promise lifelong celibacy in this area of the world. The bishops discussed this for a full month, and then they summoned up the guts to recommend a solemn 
maybe, which put the ball back in France's hands. <laughs> and um, after months of silence and after the old Pope, Benedict, co-published a book saying absolutely not to this idea, Francis eventually also said no, there's no deal, we won't do that. But now we have gotten a small insight into his thinking, Francis's thinking, when uh, some of his notes were published uh, from that time. And in those notes you can read that he thinks that the bishops did not come to the right conclusion because they spent too much time listening on arguments from one another, good arguments. Uh, that's not how you do things in the Catholic Church. None of this pesky logic on listening to reason. What you should do instead is to take plenty of breaks and meditate in solitude so you can hear what God actually thinks about it. So he's actually implemented new rules for future synods with less talking and more <laughs> meditation, because that's how he thinks uh, it should be done. Uh, so why having synods at all, you know? <laughs> uh, why, why, why talk to each other at all? Why not, not talk to God directly and, and get all the answers from there? I just imagined Pope Francis singing a little less conversation. <laughs> Very good. We should do the cover of that somehow. <laughs> uh, very good idea. Francis has also been especially active on Twitter lately, especially on the 1st of September, which apparently was World Day of Prayer for the Care of Creation Day. Uh, whatever, I don't know what that is, but he used the hashtag Jubilee for the Earth all day, which made my phone go nuts. Well, that's fine. I, I guess he needs to do something when he cannot be active in real life. But a few days later he went back to Twitter and made me really angry by the following tweet and I quote Mother Teresa, tireless worker of charity, pray for us so that our criterion for action might be gracious love offered freely to everyone without distinction of language, culture, race or religion. End quote. Okay, that, that's fine to have uh, all of those wishes, but Mother Bloody Teresa, if people are not aware, there are hundreds of reasons that Mother Teresa was not the saint that she's made out to be. She let people suffer without getting proper doctor's diagnosis and without giving real painkillers for dying patients. She said it was beautiful to see people suffer for God, just like Jesus did. And her uh, homes, where she cared for in, you know, quote-unquote, for people, they routinely baptized dying patients without consent, also including Hindus and Muslims and people of other denominations. <sighs> don't invoke her name. <laughs> Just don't. <laughs> no. But I have one more poking to do today. And um, that was about what he said this Sunday. And Brian Ego sent me this before I had found it. So thank you, Brian. Uh, this actually captures Frankie's priorities in all its glory. Uh, do you remember one time that Francis went into a tirade about hairdressers? Remember that? <laughs> yeah, vaguely. Do you remember why he was upset with them? No. <laughs> gossip. They gossiped too much. Yeah, Shut up yeah. and cut my hair. And I don't know. I think I don't think he has a lot of hair. So uh, anyway, no, not anymore. No, no. But gossip is something he he hates. Francis. Uh, it seems the worst you can do. Uh, and why is that? It is because it threatens the church. He doesn't want people yapping about pedophile priests or money by being diverted from charities or other things that may hurt the church. And this is what he said in his prayer on Sunday. This is the big uh, prayer when he, what he does through the window in, uh, at St. Peter's place. And I quote, 
Gossip closes the heart of the community, closes the unity of the church. The greatest talker is the devil who always goes about saying the bad things of others because he is the liar who tries to disunite the church, to alienate his brothers and not make community. Uh, that's a bit strange formulated, but not make community. <laughs> Please, brothers and sisters, we make an effort not to gossip. Gossip is a plague worse than COVID. Hmm. Whoa. That's right. Gossip is worse than COVID. Obviously. You know why that is? <laughs> Why? Because COVID only kills people, but gossip is a threat to his holy club. Yeah, that's mm. right. That's right. But you know, gossip is a basic human right and it's a necessity. It's I don't even say anymore that I don't gossip <laughs> because I, I know exactly that I do. You have a podcast, of course you gossip. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like even even if you think you don't gossip, you do gossip. If you're socially connected to other people, you do gossip occasionally. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's just a harmless thing. But you know what I can recommend to the Pope? Try to clean your club from all the bad guys. Exactly. So there's nothing to gossip about. Yeah. yeah. And then the gossip will be rightfully criticized. No, but he, he has been... As long as there are people who do actually do those things, shut the fuck up. He has said this before, that the bad thing... Or at least you can easily read it like he, he, he thinks the bad thing is not what's happening in the church. The bad thing is that people talk about it. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And also like uh, without gossip, who knows what the church would actually look like? Because as we already said, gossip is social glue. Yeah. So how would a big club, a big community like the church actually look like if there wasn't any gossip? Yeah. <laughs> the whole doctrine is based on gossip, yeah. for God's sake. The, the, one of the main functions of the church is that you should go and tell them how bad you were in confession. Yeah, that's and, the I mean, other thing. And then that's inviting gossip. That's that's sanctioned gossip. Yeah. Even if it's about yourself. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, immaculate conception. <laughs> And the resurrection, those are totally unsubstantiated pieces of historical remembrance. So, uh, what the fuck are you talking about? That's all gossip. All right. Thank you very much, Pontus, for poking the Pope once again. And uh, before we turn on the skeptical news, since a lot of time has elapsed since we talked about that, let's see what the latest is in COVID-19-related science. <laughs> So unfortunately, the, the world is, is going absolutely batshit crazy about the COVID-19 situation. I think we agree on that with all kinds of protests, civil unrest and all that. And I think it's safe to say that most of our leaders are not really on top of things. They might be doing the right thing, but there are very rare cases of politicians communicating really well in these troubled times, which would be key. I mean, to communicate their decisions towards the public for the public to understand it. But on the other hand... More and more facts have become known to science about how the disease works, what damage it can do, uh, even to asymptomatic people, etc. But among the most recent findings is that we have the first couple of confirmed reinfections in Europe. The first cases on the continent were reported from Belgium and the Netherlands, but the number of those cases should be expected to rise and appear elsewhere as well. But the more scientific knowledge is available about the virus, the less surprising this development is, obviously. It has been established that a few weeks after the retreat of the illness, 
the level of antibodies starts decreasing and eventually tends to get down to zero even for most of the, the patients, which has potential implications for the use of certain types of potential vaccines as well. But that's a different topic. What seems to be somewhat reassuring, though, is that the ADE, or antibody-dependent enhancement that I mentioned earlier in relation to dengue, has not been observed at all since the virus has been circulating. So that's good news. But the other thing is that the, the school year has started for most of Europe by now. And when it comes to schools and how to deal with them, among the most important questions is whether we can avoid infections on a massive scale. Experts at the WHO and local authorities in the countries of Europe try to assess the situation, but there are still many questions unanswered. The picture is beginning to take form, though. Based on contact tracing and case studies, it seems pretty clear that children are very rarely the ones transmitting the virus. It is usually the other way around, as most infections in children can be traced back to either their parents or caretakers and teachers. So, Annika, be careful. <laughs> well, I'm wearing a mask <laughs> all time. Okay, so good, I can't good. spread it. <laughs> okay, you you have a responsible approach to the to the things apparently. I'm not surprised, <laughs> but. There are a couple of weird observations about children as well. And I'm not talking about the usual teacher's aspect here, <laughs> Onika. Uh, first of all, they can have lingering viruses along with antibodies for a long time, which is a weird thing because usually by the time the antibodies grow up to uh, very high levels, the virus starts disappearing. And apparently in children, they can coexist for a long, long time. And that makes them potential sources of infection if a longer exposure is provided. For example, they spend a lot of time with uh, their peers or their grandparents. So we all have to be careful with grandparents, for example, and elderly family members contacting children. But the most surprising findings are those that show long-term changes in children's circulatory systems as a result of the infection, even if they're completely asymptomatic. That might not even be obvious and stay hidden, but lab results seem to confirm the occurrence of such cases. So even with asymptomatic cases, things can happen, not only to children, to adults as well, but uh, it was the children that we talked about in, uh, in uh, this case. So obviously, the only thing that we can do is try to get a vaccine as soon as possible. So we're all expecting the Russian vaccine, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, not so fast. I have to give it to them, uh, the Russian scientists, by publishing their results of their potential vaccine in The Lancet uh, recently. They managed to dismiss criticism regarding their secretive and potentially politically driven develop development project. The paper is freely available and Outbreak News Today provides a detailed analysis of the paper and obviously we will include that uh, on the show notes. They use a very well-known method, namely a recombinant uh, adenoviruses that can act as vectors for the spike glycoproteins of SARS-CoV-2 that in turn can induce an immune response and eventually lead to the production of neutralizing antibodies. Those are the ones that basically stop the virus from getting into the cells. But unfortunately, those results are not super convincing. They induce the production of neutralizing antibodies that are supposed to stop the viruses from getting into the cells in the first place. But it has not been shown to provide a high enough level of that neutralization. So that part is not very convincing. And it may or may not have done that achievement. So in conclusion, the method looks promising. 
But at this stage, there are no conclusive results and a lot more research is needed, which means months. It looks like it's safe, but in the publication, the length of confirmed immunization was a mere one month. So we have no idea if it could be used for a large population to reach levels of herd immunity for extended periods. And that's what we're after. We need proper protection for a long period. And to find that out, if it can provide that, it'll take several months. And I guess we'll just have to wait a little bit longer and keep applying the usual methods of avoiding infection in the meantime. Yeah. But with all that, turning towards the skeptical news, let's find out if, uh, well, any um, herbal medicine or some kind of alternative medicinal product works. I read an article by Edzard Ernst where he talks about the first randomized clinical trial of Chinese herbal medicine against COVID-19. And Ooh. yeah, they definitely thought it sounded um, very promising. Edzard Ernst, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> the goal of the study was they wanted to find out if they could find a drug that suppresses acute respiratory distress syndrome in COVID-19 patients. So like the one of the worst outcomes that COVID can have. And there were, was a control group and a group that received powders, herbal, herbal powders. In the first instance, there was no difference between the control and the test group. Then um, they expanded the studies to 48 participants and then concluded that the therapy was safe and superior to norm normal medicine. Edzard Ernst said this, that this conclusion that it, um, like the herbal medicine is superior is Completely unjustified. <laughs> he said the trial design Surprise. also doesn't hold water. And his last point is that two times 24 participants is not a good sample size for medical studies, mm -hmm. <laughs> to which we could probably all agree. So, yeah, I have to disappoint you, Andras. There's no herbal medicine on the horizon that can help us against COVID. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay, why, why don't we try the different way? Why don't we simply deny the whole virus or the pandemic exists? <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure that in all of European countries, uh, we could name a couple of names, but um, there is a trio in Hungary. All of them have their prefix doctor in front of their names. Uh, one of them is a um, pediatric surgeon by the name um, uh, Alfred Porch. And another one is uh, Jozef Tomashi, who's, um, I don't know what kind of doctor he is, but he's also um, a naturopath. And there is one who's the greatest star, and at least becoming that uh, lately. Uh, his name is Jörg Gödin. And uh, he's a pharmacist. But uh, he's mostly known for his being a bodybuilder and um, figurehead for some nutritional products. So, so definitely qualified, right? <laughs> he's, he's definitely qualified. And this trio basically denies the fact that there is a pandemic. They say that it's all politically motivated and uh, it's controlled by, I'm not saying the lizard people, but it's some, some intergovernmental shadow organization uh, is, is being behind this. And uh, they say that uh, all the measures uh, taken by uh, the different countries, especially Hungary, are absolutely exaggerated and they're not necessary, including the wearing of masks or hand sanitizing and everything. So 
Basically, they say that the whole thing has been completely blown out of proportion. And uh, there is nothing to see here. There are diseases that are much worse, and uh, we don't care about those. Why should we care about COVID-19 that kills only the, the elderly people who have had several underlying conditions anyway? Now, finally, the Hungarian medical chamber decided to act on this. And uh, they issued a statement completely distancing themselves from these people. And one of them, Alfred Poch, happens to be one of the local presidents of uh, one of the local chapters of the Hungarian Medical Chamber. And obviously, you might expect that, that he uses it, this fact, all the time whenever he appears in the media to justify his position. He, he comes from a position of an expert. But then the other brilliant thing about this um, uh, statement by the Hungarian Medical Chamber is that uh, they refer to a couple of uh, articles and a, a couple of sources that, uh, according to them, recognize the severity of the situation and how the science about COVID-19 works and what it says. And uh, they specifically mention a blog post on the blog of the Hungarian Skeptic Society. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the Hungarian Medical Chamber actually quotes us. Ah, that's good. In that statement, that's cool. which is pretty good. And uh, obviously, Gödény, being a pharmacist, he's outside the scope of the Hungarian Medical Chamber. Unfortunately, the Hungarian Chamber of Pharmacists has not yet issued a statement like that. I'm really hoping that by the time that this goes out, it happens. We wanted to give this a push, a little bit of a push. So when the this was issued, we issued a statement as well as a Hungarian Skeptic Society that we completely agree with the Hungarian Medical Chamber statement and uh, we are uh, ready to, to back them up and uh, provide any help with the fight against this madness sounds really good <laughs> mm -hmm. and you know whom Godin, the pharmacist guy the, the bodybuilder guy refers to all the time that's a german guy by the name sukarit bakdi what do we know about him yeah that's a funny coincidence because sukarit bakdi is a medical professional um and a guest professor in kiel which is in germany and mm -hmm. He says that a vaccine would be redundant and that COVID is not more dangerous than a cold. And because of that opinion, um, the University of Kiel just declared in a statement that these claims are without evidence and that they are contradicting scientific consensus. So the University of Kiel also distanced themselves from this guy. And they uh, alluded to a study in um, Germany that in where it was seen that 86% of patients died of COVID and not with COVID. So they also like supported the thing again that it's like it's not only the elderly, it's not only the people in the risk group that die. Yeah. And interestingly, this professor is also a member of a union that will help you getting in contact with um, medical professionals who will then write you a medical exemption so that you don't have to wear a mask in shops. So he's, he's being busy all around to help the virus spread pretty much. Yeah. As if it needs help. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really. That's right. All right. We have a 
problem with these deniers. And um, we also hear from Spain an example that we have a huge and growing pro uh, problem with the anti-vax movement as well, because this is very much interlinked. Mm -hmm. We did mention the stupid pandemic movie two weeks ago and uh, Andrew Wakefield and others uh, who are really mobilizing to spread doubts about a future vaccine and vaccine safety and efficacy. And the real bad news is that it seems to be working. We've seen polls from several countries about the public's attitude towards a future COVID-19 vaccine. And now there's a new one from Spain. As I said, the new poll was carried out by the Carlos III Health Institute. And it points to that 30% of the public have doubts about getting vaccinated against COVID-19. And you can turn that around and say, well, that means at least 70% were positive. And that is true. That is what the polls showed. However, that should be compared with a study from two years ago conducted by the European Commission that showed that 91.6% in Spain considered vaccines in general to be safe. So we're sort of losing the battle here. And I'm not sure what we can do to counter this wave of misinformation um, because the anti-vaxxers have the advantage of cheating and being dishonest, which is something we won't do. We, we cannot do that. We, they are using half-truths and outright lies, and they have no problems with discrediting a vaccine that doesn't even exist yet, uh, while we keep being factual about things. So we cannot say right now that there is proof that the vaccine that not yet exists yet is safe and effective. We can't say that. We have to sit and wait for it to arrive, and then we can point to the evidence. And in the meanwhile, these anti-vaxxers keep poisoning the well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not right. Yeah. We could have good leaders who can communicate well and lead their countries to the world of uh, common sense. Yeah. Are there such leaders? That would be wonderful. <laughs> I talked about female leaders doing better around COVID before on this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you criticized that idea. Yeah, I said like there are things that I could agree with, but other things where I was like, yeah, but well, that's also a bit stereotypical. Yeah, yeah, it, it really looked like that. <laughs> but it was more that like I, I criticized the angle, not not the article uh, or oh, the idea oh, okay, itself. Okay, okay, yeah, I remember now. Yeah, and now it seems that there's actually data to, to back the... Um, the whole claim up what yeah <laughs> because they investigated and they tried to find countries that would be similar in in regards of for example socio-demographic and economic characteristics mm -hmm. and they said it's difficult completely to to like there's a word of caution because of course we're still at the start of the pandemic and data is regarded and recorded differently in countries for example like deaths are written down differently they said 10% of their sample of 194 countries are female-led. And um, as I said, they matched them with similar male-led countries. And they found out that countries led by women have performed better in terms of COVID deaths, with Belgium being an outlier of that. <laughs> yeah. They think it was maybe because they locked down significantly earlier. I mean, those other countries. Yeah, the female-led countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. They also think it might have to do with like risky behavior by male leaders. And they gave several anecdotes, including Boris Johnson shaking hands and then contracting COVID. <laughs> Stupid fuck. And, and bragging about it. Yeah. It was like yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, that's uh, something we all remember fondly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they also like criticize themselves and saying that that's too easy of an explanation. 
And that locking down also is a risky behavior because it can risk the economy of a country, for example, or the goodwill of the population. They said it could also be that there are different like leading styles uh, involved um, because they said usually males uh, are more task oriented, whereas female leaders are more interpersonally oriented. So they have like more able teams. <laughs> mm -hmm. But they also said they don't know the e complete explanation yet. Uh, the data just shows that there's a difference. <laughs> mm. So yeah, I found that really interesting. What do you guys think? Well, it could be the other way around. It could be that sensible countries are more open to elect female leaders. And uh, since the country is more sensible, they do better in the in the fight. Mm -hmm. You never know. But I think we see a couple of examples of those uh, female leaders taking the time and energy and uh, making an effort explaining stuff to people. Like the, the Norwegian prime minister, I think yeah. she's often uh, portrayed with uh, a student trying to explain to student uh, how to behave in a social, social distancing situation. Mm. And uh, I really love what Jacinda Ardern does, mm -hmm. the yes. prime minister of New, New Zealand. Every single day she goes online, explains what has been done, what what the latest is, and then she occasionally talks to experts on a live video uh, trying to ask the questions that people would ask uh, an expert. So that's like an approachable, open-minded kind of attitude. And what I really find about them is that they probably recognize better that very strong need in people's minds for explanations and for a um, compassionate leader yes and a compassionate person who takes the time and, and makes the effort to to make them understand what the situation is and i'm not saying that it's only women who can do that our listeners from um, canada might not agree with me on that but i find the canadian prime minister justin trudeau's briefings uh, very useful very much like the ones that i just explained and he's a male leader so that you can find counter examples as well anyhow isn't it time for us to move on from COVID? Yes. I think um, <laughs> we should talk about something else. So uh, <laughs> I'd like to start by um, mentioning something that has been uh, recently done. It's a, it's a survey that has been conducted jointly by the National Board Against Counterfeiting and Tarki, one of the major polling agencies in Hungary, among young adults, 18 to 30 years of age to find out about their attitudes towards food supplements and pharmaceuticals. It was conducted online on a sample size of 500, evenly spread across male and female respondents. Now, just quickly uh, running through the, the results, at least two-thirds of uh, the respondents has already consumed some kind of food supplement uh, in their lives. Oh, and it's not very shocking that uh, they usually buy them, 80% um, of them, close to 80% of them usually buy these products for their concentrated supplement content. So they want some kind of nutritional uh, content that it um, has in a concentrated form. So, so do we talk, are we talking about uh, uh, vitamins or what are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And mm -hmm. their main motivation for taking the, these supplements is preserving their health, obviously. At least two thirds of them uh, reported that. And um, the other thing, that close to half of the respondents said that uh, one of the reasons why they take food supplements is that they do not 
have to be prescribed by doctors so they can just buy it uh, over the counter. So that's um, a very strong motivation. And another interesting thing is that uh, it's like um, 73%, so almost uh, three-fourths of uh, the respondents who find it very useful and uh, like food supplements are women. So uh, men tend to rely on these uh, products much less. But here are the slightly surprising facts. Almost a quarter of the respondents could not distinguish food supplements from actual medicinal products. So they considered them drugs. So, so how could they even answer the poll then? <laughs> because if you were... The poll was basically about the two. So medic medicinal products and food supplements as well. Yeah. So they wanted to find out the, their attitudes towards them. Yes, yes. So almost one fourth, or almost a quarter of the respondents really categorized them as medicinal products. And um, the other thing is that there is a misconception about the food supplements. One in five thought that these food supplements only contain natural ingredients. So that's a complete misconception and uh, almost one third of them uh, think that even if it's not a medicinal product per se, it has a positive health effect. So the picture, what it really paints for us, this survey, is that there is a total chaos in the minds about what is a food supplement, what is a medicinal product, what is medicine and they have all kinds of different misconceptions. Yeah, uh, including the one that natural things must be better than artificially produced things, which is not true in itself. Yeah, that's a logical, that's a fallacy. Yeah, that's a logical fallacy. Yes, right. That's a, so, that's a naturalistic yeah. fallacy. Yeah, yeah e exactly. I mean, the appeal to nature. I actually talked about that on my talk of uh, chemophobia. Yeah. That's one of the things I like to talk about. Yeah, yeah. And I think Pixie Turner mentions that a lot of, like, very often too, mm. that like yeah. food supplements can't heal any sickness from you. It's she says like supplements that can be good i think one that she often mentions is like vitamin d mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's pretty much it yeah. she said like apart from that a well-rounded diet is just the best you can do but don't take it for like chemotherapy or anything like that mm. yeah and there is there is one thing that that is difficult for a lot of people to understand and even uh, highly educated people find it difficult if you have a deficiency a nutritional deficiency so you need some kind of supplement to operate to function properly. That doesn't necessarily mean if you overdose that, that it will have a positive beneficial effect yeah. on your health. It doesn't necessarily mean that. And the same thing happened with a, a vitamin D that you just mentioned, that they found that uh, those with a, a vitamin D deficiency tend to have a much severe kind of illness from COVID-19. And that resulted in people taking vitamin d like crazy yeah. thinking that it will actually save them from or, or protect them yeah. from the virus yeah it doesn't happen mm. and it's like only because a lot of europeans are deficient in vitamin d that's the only reason why it helps if you take it <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's because you're yeah. deficient before so <laughs> yeah that's right that's right all right this next item comes to us from listener kim in denmark thank you very much there is a non-profit organization in Denmark called Hjerteforeningen, if you pardon my Danish, 
or plainly in translation, the Heart Society, if you will. They have over 100,000 supporting members and they do what you expect that that kind of organization would do. They promote information and drive initiatives to combat the issue of heart failure and related problems like that. However, sometimes the best of intentions uh, do not translate into good results. They had a project recently called PS I Love You where they wanted to engage uh, some novel concepts and voices, especially to reach a younger audience. But maybe they should have looked a little bit closer before they decided which of those voices to employ, because among those that they enrolled in the project, uh, there was something called Mind Blown. Uh, And there was a lady who called herself the holistic doctor. uh, And um, both of them have, shall we say, some controversial ideas. (laughs) The entity called Mindblown has gone on to claim that hearts can communicate with each other directly (laughs) uh, without the use of the rest of the body. So it's sort of telepathy between the the hearts and this so-called holistic doctor she is into remote healing and she has also in another context on youtube tried to suck all coronavirus into the center of the earth with her mind as far as we can tell it hasn't worked Uh, So after getting a lot of critique during the summer, including from one MP called Stinus Lindgren, who ran uh, his campaign under the motto, a researcher in parliament, the project has now been closed. So uh, good for them uh, to close it. Maybe next time they should look a little bit closer on who they collaborate with (laughs) because this is a serious organization this heart society and they usually do not get uh, tangled up with this uh, woo-woo people definitely well it always helps to look a little bit closer whenever and whatever (laughs) you encounter and this is what we did with a little bit of help um, at the hungarian skeptic society there is a product i think i've already mentioned it on the podcast a while ago that is a grapefruit seed extract mm, i think that so, is yes. marketed by a guy who goes by the name uh, dr chobai but dr chobai doesn't really hold a doctorate which is weird uh, in the first place and uh, he's not a medical doctor obviously but uh, his doctorate is not real as uh, one of our investigations has revealed but this time it's uh, the immune booster product that is being marketed by him is what's um, under the microscope. And uh, by microscope, I'm saying it's not a real microscope. It would have been nice, <laughs> but we didn't need that. What we needed is uh, a lovely guy, a professor at the University of uh, Seged, who goes by the name Dejer Chupor. And uh, he runs a very nice biology blog as well. And he's lab did the actual uh, investigation for us. They went through a thin layer chromatography method to find out not the quantities, but what kind of material can be found in this product. And to our great surprise and um, massive amusement, we couldn't find any kind of grapeseed extract. Well, there is one specific chemical that is um, being looked for, and that is called nomilin. And that is what uh, grapefruit seeds definitely have a lot of. So
So if you come across a grapefruit seed and you analyze the composition of it, you definitely will find this chemical called nomalin. And none of it was detected. What was found, however, was um, benzalkonium derivative, which is mostly used in disinfectants. Ouch. So <laughs> there are a couple of things. First of all, the product has never seen a grapefruit, <laughs> so it never had anything to do with grapefruit, let alone the grapefruit seed. That's one thing. The other thing is that the product claims to contain only natural ingredients, and uh, this benzalkonium derivative is definitely not something that is natural. It's a um, completely synthetic part of disinfectants. It's a benzalkonium chloride uh, is the usual form that it appears in certain disinfectants. So it does have disinfectants. We don't know in what concentration, but the, the guy who actually did the, the investigation and um, used the lab equipment, he filed an official complaint um, to the National Institute of Pharmacy and Nutrition. Good. That uh, is the responsible for the oversight of things like that. All right. I have good news. Mm -hmm. Our friend Ed Sodernst, who is actually with us almost every show, <laughs> because <laughs> we right. refer to his website so long, <laughs> he has yet another book out. Uh, he's extremely prolific. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> this new book came out on the 25th of August. It's released by Springer and it's called Chiropractic, Not All That It's Cracked Up To Be which I think is very, very <laughs> it's a telling, telling amusing title. title. Yep. So it's available now as a paperback or as an ebook, And it is, of course, uh, a thorough walkthrough of what chiropractic is and what it is not, the theory behind it, what it's used for and why you sh what you probably shouldn't use it for. And also uh, going through where the evidence is that it works or or not. In fact, it, there's very little evidence for a lot of the claims uh, that is made about it. Etadunst is always very fair and he weighs the pros and cons for anything that he looks into. But uh, he says in the in already in the foreword that quote the misinformation on chiropractic is scandalous and demands a critical ev evaluation of the evidence, end quote. So you can see where the conclusions are going. <laughs> yeah. uh, and even though it's one of the most popular of all scams, and that's scam in the sense of uh, so-called alternative medicine, he says that, quote, a plethora of fundamental questions about chiropractic remain unanswered. And what he is means is that there's a lot of evidence lacking that it's uh, working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and wow. something that a new study found out, and they found evidence for something that is actually existent, is that... Um, Go science! Yeah, they, they <laughs> yeah? found out <laughs> that autistic people's nerve cells actually differ from before birth. And really no. interesting... <laughs> Although the disorder itself is usually not diagnosed before uh, one and a half years of age, it can be said that it can already be seen in earliest brain organization. And they say the atypical development apparently starts in the earliest stages of brain organization, even on the level of individual brain cells. Mm -hmm. 
which is super interesting. Mm -hmm. To find that out, they did an experiment on, on embryos, but they used pluripotent stem cells and triggered them to form into brain cells. And the brain cells from autistic people developed differently. Mm -hmm. They used hair cells from autistic and neurotypical people and then like tried to push them into brain cells. And after 21 days, the cells differed significantly. Mm. And the differences shown like very early in, in life because these stem cells were so young. The co-leader of the study, Simon Baron Cohen, made it clear that their goal wasn't to prevent or cure autism, but they just want to better understand the brain, which is, a, I would say, a very good goal. <laughs> and as you can already think, like if it's seen in prenatal cells, it definitely can't be a vaccine. <laughs> no, and we knew that already, though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's just another nail in the coffin of this stupid idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just trying to figure out what uh, the counter argument will be from the anti-vaxxers aside against that, because it, it, there, there has to be something. Otherwise, they just have to accept that uh, it doesn't have anything to do with vaccination. Ah, uh, they won't do that. Ah, <laughs> uh, they, they will find something. They will find <laughs> It's like, will be yeah, the vaccinations yeah. of the mum, or it will be that the autistic people, they got the cells from, were vaccinated or something like that. Or so. the, more, the more sophisticated ones will try to criticize the protocol. But in my opinion, this is a brilliant research method. Yes. Because for a pluripotent stem cell, that basically has the complete genetic structure of the person that it holds so if it, it was a significant effect that they saw that it means that it's genetic in origin mm. yeah mm. exactly that's it mm. <laughs> and it's like even the method in itself is so genius because mm -hmm. they didn't like it wasn't even invasive they just took hair <laughs> yeah mm. All right. I think that has been all the news that we uh, wanted to share. So many of them, but don't forget that we've had to cover two weeks worth of news items. That's right. Because there, there's a lot going on. But um, well, we should probably find out where else there is a lot going on. So who's been really wrong lately, Pontus? All right, so we have seen the authorities in Poland with numbskull in charge, Andrzej Duda, or whatever, how you pronounce it. He is taking the lead in persecution of the LGBT plus movement. And in June this year, in a campaign speech just before the Polish presidential election, he called the LGBT ideology, quote unquote, more destructive than communism. I, I probably a lot of people saw that. And of course, because this is 2020, he then went on to win the election again, leader as he is of the Law and Order Party, abbreviated PIS in Polish. I wonder if that is a coincidence. <laughs> and like vultures, the Catholic bishops in Poland now swoops in to share on and contribute to the persecution, even referring to Papa Francesco himself. <laughs> they cannot wait to play their part. So after a three-day uh, Episcopal conference that ended on 1st of September, they published a 27-page document describing how the church is ready to offer its quote-unquote help to LGBT uh, plus persons who want to change their sexual orientation because of course that's what they think is needed. And uh, how is the church proposing to do so? By conversion therapy in special counseling centers or clinics. <sighs> yeah. 
So these blabbering bloody bishops in Poland want to create a special clinic with active help from the Catholic Church. And I quote from this document, It is necessary to create a counseling center, also with the help of the church or with its structures, to help people who wish to, and remember this is a direct quote, regain their sexual health and natural sexual orientation, end quote. So uh, we have talked. Disgusting. Yeah, it's disgusting. It really is. Uh, we have talked so many times about how so-called conversion therapy doesn't. It isn't just that it doesn't work. It is harmful, and it cannot, and it does not work. And you would think that these nut jobs know this because this is not a secret. And you know what? They do know it because they say so themselves in the fucking document. I quote again from another place. Quote. Such counseling centers is clearly in contradiction with official opinions of the LGBT uh, movement, who takes positions regarded as scientific, end quote. <laughs> as if that was something wrong. <laughs> and they are the ones calling it ideology. Yeah, yes. exactly, exactly. Uh, they go on to call this, uh, uh, they say that the LGBT movement only says so because it's politically correct. And they don't want to be politically correct because they have testimonies from people <laughs> claiming that it works. So, of course, it works and they want to do it anyway, oh, no. even though they know it's unscientific. Bloody hell. You know, I don't understand why they make so much effort, because the only thing they need to do for these people to regain their sexual health and find their way back to their natural sexual orientation is to be left alone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just let it be. Welcome <laughs> them. Say it's fine. Love is love. And all that hate is so tiring. Yes. I mean, hating is tiring. Yeah. All right. So for knowingly going against all science and decency and suggesting something that they know is futile and harmful, just to please their imaginary friend in the sky, the Polish Episcopal Conference and all these bishop dudes, they get today's prize for being really wrong. Well deserved. Yeah. Again, well-deserved. <laughs> I think there are two reasons why the quote that I'd like to finish the show with uh, is very fitting here. First of all, it comes from a Polish writer known for his satirical, philosophical and science fiction works, Stanislav Lem. Ooh. And uh, the other thing is what he actually said, which is the following. Even the fact that competent experts must serve under politicians of mediocre intelligence and little foresight is a problem that we are stuck with, because the experts themselves cannot agree on any major world issue. A logocracy of quarrelling experts might be no better than the rule of the mediocrities to which we are subject. The declining intellectual quality of political leadership is the result of the growing complexity of the world, since no one be he endowed with the highest wisdom, can grasp it in its entirety, it is those who are least bothered by this who strive for power. Ooh, that's very deep. Yeah. It's a very sophisticated way of saying that uh, politicians are stupid. <laughs> and increasingly so. Yes. But they crave power. Yeah. And we are subject to them. And it's something that we can there was probably a, like yeah. has foreseen or something, you know. Yeah. There was a time when smart people managed to find the time to spend time both on politics and on science. Yeah. But that's long gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that very positive note, <laughs> <laughs> we should probably end this show. So uh, I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, 
for joining me today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in indeed. And uh, please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bis bald. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe It's funny because the word skeptic also contains the word dick. Skeptic. Yeah. Oh, so. with the German pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> How can that be? They haven't been vaccinated yet. Yeah, that is yes. exactly my joke that I already wrote down oh, because I wanted to make it. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> oh, sorry. Muha. <coughs> Muha. Are you done? <laughs> yes, baby. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Kapal boom.